Welcome to the Women's Health and Fertility Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Evelyn Kennedy, a fertility nutritionist with a decade of experience in well-being, nutrition, and a strong background in health promotion, psychology, and masters in human nutrition. Join me as we navigate the realm of fertility nutrition, hormonal health, and psychological well-being support. Let's learn, grow, and glow together. Now let's get into this episode. Good morning, or good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to another episode of the Women's Health and Fertility Nutrition Podcast. I'm very excited about today's guest, and sure, our audience will learn so much from this person. Our guest today is Dr. Carolina Sweldo, so I'm just going to get you to introduce yourself. Absolutely. Evelyn, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, so a great topic. I'm so grateful to you for using your platform to talk about this. Um, for those who don't know me, I am Dr. Carolina Sweldo. I am a double board certified reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist. I've been in practice now for almost a decade, and that's after all the years of training. <laughs> and I've been fortunate enough to be a speaker on many stages, uh, both at the national level here in the U.S., as well as several countries um, in Argentina. I am uh, heavily involved both at the local level in uh, the chapters of reproductive medicine that we have here in our different states, um, as well as the ASRM, which is the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. And just this year, I was named to one of the board members for the Latin American Reproductive Association. So lots of titles, but also lots of blood, sweat, and tears that went into those titles. <laughs> I was so lucky to yeah. have you. So I am currently practicing in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, which is South Florida, and I am the founder of Sabo Fertility Center, where we believe in fertility care reimagined. It is a high-touch boutique fertility practice. So Evelyn, I'm at your service. I'm all yours <laughs> for this We're next so little while. Lucky so. to have you. Thank you. I know I've been so looking forward to having this conversation because I know there is so much that we can talk about. So obviously you're a trained endocrinologist. For those who might not know what an endocrinologist is, are you able to give our listeners a bit of an insight into what that is? Sure. So there's really two types of endocrinologists that we talk about here in the U.S. You have a general endocrinologist. They typically tend to be your thyroid specialist, your diabetes specialist. So they're looking at all hormones, including the non-reproductive hormones. And then you have a reproductive endocrinologist. So in my case, once I completed medical school, I did four years of obstetrics and gynecology, also known as OBGYN here in the U.S., and then I did an additional three years of a subspecialty in reproductive endocrinology. And we still talked about thyroid and prolactin, and we still touch on diabetes, but really, really the main focus is looking at those reproductive hormones and the disorders associated with those reproductive hormones. Wow, that is so interesting. And so can you give us a little bit of an insight into like what sparked your passion in this area? Like why did you want to go specifically into fertility and reproductive health? Yeah, I was always passionate about empowering other women. And I thought I would be going into OBGYN more from a reproductive rights standpoint, educated women on birth control, contraception, um, sexually transmitted diseases, etc. And once I was in my residency training, I was actually exposed to the IVF laboratory. And really what is done in the IVF laboratory is nothing short of a miracle. From a science standpoint, it is the most cutting edge that you can get. The science is always evolving. You really have to stay up to date in it. So just, you know, really exciting for somebody who loves medicine. And then once I began practicing, I really fell in love with it for the patients. The patient-physician relationship is so special and so unique to this branch of medicine. I have patients, like I said, I've been in practice almost a decade, and I have patients from my first year in practice that I still stay in touch with. They send me pictures of their kiddos. You know, it's just a really special bond that you don't see in a lot of other areas of medicine. So definitely fell in love with it for that. Well, I suppose, you know, it, it is one of the most important things that you are helping someone with. So we might just get into some questions around 
fertility and hormones. So can you explain what the role hormones play in fertility and reproductive? Yes. So essentially hormones are the drivers. And so what I, when I talk to patients about, you know, fertility and reproduction, what we talk about is this sort of synchronous communication between the brain, the ovary and the uterus. And so all of those parts have to be functioning normally. The brain secretes its hormones, specifically FSH or follicle stimulating hormone and LH or luteinizing hormone. The ovary produces its hormones, specifically estrogen and progesterone. And then the uterus is responding to that interplay throughout the menstrual cycle. And so a patient who is having regular predictable monthly menses is having a very regular and predictable interplay of the, those four hormones. There's a few others, but those are the four main ones. Yeah. And so when you start to see disorders in these, whether we're talking about progesterone, lack of estrogen production, if the brain isn't working properly and not secreting those hormones. So there's a whole different host of disorders that can be associated that where the brain and the ovary are not communicating properly. Very good. Um, so I know you did speak about like the disorders. Are mm -hmm. you able to go into some of the most common ones that you tend to see with the clients that you work with? Yeah, I love that question. That's beautiful. <laughs> the first, the, the typical presenting complaint from a patient is usually going to be one, they've been trying and nothing's happening or they have some sort of menstrual disorder. Their menstrual, their menses are irregular or they cannot predict bleeding. They can't track ovulation. They started trying, they're newly married. They can't track ovulation. And then we begin to do the evaluation to try and discern what it is that's going on. And we do know, and we were just talking about this before the recording started, that thyroid disorders are a very common cause for some of these symptoms that patients will present with. In the setting of a normal thyroid hormone, we do look at the reproductive hormones and the most common disorder we see is going to be PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome. Here in the US, it affects up to 13% of reproductive age women, which in the US comes out to roughly about 5 million women. So very, very common disease, a lot more common than people think. And the mm -hmm. way I talk about PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome is that it's not cysts on the ovaries as, as the name would suggest, but rather it's an egg excess disease. So the ovary has so many eggs, it's almost like a system overload for the brain. The brain can't figure out which one to pick, and so it doesn't. Therefore, ovulation doesn't happen. And if ovulation doesn't happen, the menses are going to become irregular and pregnancy is going to become more difficult. So that, by and away, is the, the most common one that we see. The yeah. opposite end of that, or the other extreme, would be not enough eggs. And unfortunately, that's something we are seeing more and more of as we're looking for these diagnoses. And that's something known as premature ovarian insufficiency, or also commonly known as early menopause. So that's typically when all the egg supply is completely depleted in a patient under 40 years old. So those are when you talk about extremes in the egg reserve or the egg quantity that a patient has. There are a few others, and we can certainly get into the more rare ones, but those are probably the two most common outside of general endocrine conditions like thyroid, like prolactin, like newly diagnosed uncontrolled diabetes and things like that. Very good. If we maybe go a little bit into the thyroid side of things, because I know... Sure. Uh, we definitely have some listeners that are interested. I know there's a couple of different ones that can affect your fertility. Are you able to kind of talk just a little bit around there's like hypo yeah. and hyper and... Yeah, uh, so I'll try to keep it. Yeah, endocrinology is actually not easy, even for <laughs> physicians. <laughs> So I'm going to try and keep it as like simple as I can. Yeah. So in the same way that with the reproductive hormones, the brain and the ovary have to talk to each other properly, with thyroid disease, the same is occurring. So the brain and the thyroid gland have to talk to each other properly. The thyroid gland is a small sort of fatty tissue that sits in our throat and is responsible for production of the thyroid hormone. And so if the, if the gland is not producing enough thyroid hormone, that's called hypothyroidism, 
Mm-hmm. Or if it's working overtime and it's unnecessarily overproducing thyroid hormone, then we have hyperthyroidism. So mm-hmm. either extreme is going to be negative for fertility and reproduction. Overt hypothyroidism, overt hyperthyroidism. These are typically patients that are very symptomatic. And you have the extreme. So thyroid is a metabolic hormone. So think about it controls your metabolism. It controls things like your temperature regulation, um, your heart rate, you know, how you're feeling, cold and clammy, hot, et cetera. And certainly in either extreme can impact that communication between the brain and the ovary and interrupt normal menses and normal ovulation. So the overt disease is a typical symptomatic patient that's presenting their doc- to their doctor with these kind of general vague complaints. The thyroid is checked. It's clearly abnormal. And then they want to you know, bring it back to normal, normalize. And then you see those patients, their menses tend to regulate. Where things become a little trickier is what we call subclinical thyroid disorder. So Technically, the lab values fall within quote unquote normal range, but the patient may have some subtle, you know, things. Maybe they have some spotting before menses. So very subtle changes. And as a reproductive endocrinologist, we are actually fairly aggressive in treating subclinical thyroid disorders. The reason for that is because our feeling is sort of risk benefit. So most thyroid treatments are fairly low cost, low invasiveness, low side effect profile when given in, in small doses to correct that mild underlying disorder. And in turn for fertility can mean correction of an ovulation disorder, can mean decrease in the risk of miscarriage. So it can mean a whole lot of beneficial things for from a fertility standpoint with really minimal risk to the patient. So we're actually fairly aggressive. Um, and again, that area is going to be one of those gray areas we were talking about earlier uh, before the recording where there's not sort of this black and white clear cut guideline. And so depending on the provider you're working with, they may be a little more conservative, a little more aggressive. But I think you'll find most reproductive endocrinologists tend to err on the side of checking the thyroid and then, you know, treating fairly aggressively. That's actually really amazing because I know a lot of the time, you know, if you go to your doctor and you're within those cutoff rates, they won't even like do further tests in that area. So like, it's really, really, you know, from that aspect, then I think it's really important if you do feel like that is the issue to see someone like an endocrinologist like yourself, especially if you're really going to do that investigation. But I think especially if you're family building and things aren't working, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. you've been trying for four, five, six months, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe you're presenting with some subtle symptoms or whatnot. You know, I think the the biggest message I can give to women is you know your body best. And if Mm -hmm. you feel like something's off, don't dismiss that. Make sure that you're working with someone who you feel like like they're hearing you, Mm -hmm. you know, they're exploring different options, et cetera. You know, and again, seeing the right specialist. So, so, you know, if you're in a fertility journey, a reproductive endocrinologist slash infertility specialist is going to be the person you want to see. Because you hear this term of unexplained a lot. Mm. Like, is it more unexplored? And that's right, right, right. So what I tell patients, yeah, so to, to your point, thank you for bringing that up. When we talk about the distribution of fertility, we typically talk about 30% of the time, it's a female factor. So we do the evaluation, we find block tubes, we find endometriosis, we find something on the female partner. 30% of the time, the female workup is completely normal, but we actually find an abnormal semen analysis. So male and female factor infertility are actually distributed normally. And then 20% of the time, we find you know both partners are impacted in some way. And then 20% of the time, the workup is negative for both. We Historically, that has been called unexplained infertility. I don't like unexplained infertility. I prefer undiagnosed infertility. And so typically the way I counsel patients is that the testing available to us specialists today is not finding whatever it is that's going on. We've done the full kitchen sink workup. Everything is coming back okay. That doesn't mean you don't have a reason for your infertility. It just means that the testing we have available is not able to diagnose it. No, that's really good, you know, for people who've been given that 
unexplained title. I actually so had, frustrating. I had a client that had unexplained infertility for 10 years. They never, oh. they never found out why. And yeah. that's a really, really, really hard thing. And I think, yeah, it's really more exploring and to have someone that's going to really like look at every area for you, I think mm-hmm. is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, you did touch on treatment. So like working mm-hmm. with clients, are you able to give us a bit of an insight on how that would work with, um, sure. just, is yeah, it, so, or is it lifestyle? Is it? What, so what great question. Whenever we talk to patients about treatment, uh, well, I shouldn't say we, whenever I am talking to patients about treatment, I am talking to them about a three armed approach. So the first approach is going to be the traditional medical treatment that we do in the office. And I'm going to talk about that last. The second piece is going to be the lifestyle component. And this is where you come in. So talking about, you know, sleep, nutrition, stress, caffeine, alcohol. And what I tell them is, you know, do a 24 hour inventory of your day. What are you eating? How are you moving your body? Are you waking up feeling rested? you know, what exposures, what's your stress level like at work, et cetera. And I don't know, I think 2023 was a really rough year for a lot of people coming out of the pandemic. So I'm optimistic. I'm excited for 2024. I think hopefully new year, fresh start, but certainly lifestyle. And the tough thing about lifestyle is that it's tough to quantify, right? From a research standpoint, it's really tough to have objective markers But anecdotally, I can certainly tell you that lifestyle plays a huge impact. And we have some data. We know that those that don't sleep well may have sleep apnea, which is lack of oxygenating when they when they sleep. And if you're not oxygenating well, guess what? That's going to affect your reproductive tissues and long term has been associated with infertility. Things like night shift workers, things like excessive caffeine or excessive alcohol. So there's interesting associations although I couldn't sort of give you an umbrella research study of lifestyle in general. So I definitely think that's a huge component, nutrition being one of those factors. And then the third piece I talk about and I strongly believe in is integrative practices. And this is not traditional Western medicine. This is looking at number one, you know, acupuncture, number two, yoga, number three, journaling or guided imagery, number four, meditation on a regular basis. I think in in the Western world, we're just now starting to scratch the surface of the benefits of those treatments that have been around for thousands of years in some cases. And so just this past year, there was a big article that made national headlines here in the U.S. that showed that they compared antidepressants to regular meditation and found that regular meditation was equivalent to those anti the use of those regular antidepressants. So integrative practices are not going to be the end all be all, but they're certainly going to optimize the journey as we incorporate both lifestyle integrative practices and then, you know, compound those with the medical treatment. So then moving on to the medical treatment, generally speaking, If there is a female partner and a male partner, because there's obviously many variations to that, but if there is a female partner and a male partner, we typically talk about medication for the female partner, and that is to stimulate her ovaries to produce eggs. Generally, we like to see if it's a non-IVF or non-ART treatment for or less. If they're going to IVF, we try to maximize the number of eggs that they're recruiting. So medications can be either oral, injectable, or a combination of both. And those are given to the female patient with close monitoring to try and stimulate those ovaries to grow. And then that can be combined with timed intercourse at home. That can be combined with something called an artificial insemination, which is also known as intrauterine insemination or IUI. So depositing the sperm, it's kind of like a pap smear appointment, depositing the sperm inside the uterus And then the third option is sort of the world of ART or assisted reproductive technologies, where essentially it's an all-encompassing term for the creation of embryos, the use of gametes outside of the body. And there you have traditional IVF. So the woman's eggs, the male sperm create embryos, put them back. You can also add genetic testing to that to test embryos before they go back in. You may also not be able to use the patient's egg or the partner's sperm. So then we start talking about egg donation, sperm donation, 
embryo donation. So it's already been formed. It's in storage and is being donated. And then also the use of gestational surrogacy. So there's a whole umbrella of options under that ART category and really just depends on each individualized case. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah. <laughs> there's so many dif different aspects. And obviously, you know, you can do so many different areas, which is so beneficial as well, like between the medical intervention and lifestyle. Yes. We might talk a little bit more about the lifestyle stuff because obviously yes. my interest area. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. So around the nutrition aspect and let's say your coffee and your alcohol as well. Mm -hmm. Have you worked with clients, you know, where they've come in and you've recommended, you know, the nutrition changes and alcohol, reducing alcohol and caffeine. Uh, first off, probably actually, what is the research behind caffeine and fertility? <laughs> because I know a lot of people will be like, please don't say it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> so, I know people over here yeah, have so coffee. I was going to say, I think I'll have some friends after this, and I think I'll have some enemies after this. So with alcohol, you know, and this is true for both those trying to conceive as well as pregnancy, we have not really been able to establish a clear threshold above which there is fertility and below which there is fertility. So generally speaking, the recommendation should be zero alcohol. Now, I'm not quite as stringent as that. And I'll tell you why, because infertility takes a huge mental, physical, psychological toll on the patient and the couple and life still has to happen, right? Infertility is a marathon, not a sprint. Some people do this for months. Some people do this for years. You know, I just had a review recently that they, you know, they were patients of mine for five years before they finally had their, their baby. And yeah. so life still has to happen. There still have to be moments of socialization, moments of joy. So am I going to tell you to go out and, you know, on a bender on a Friday night? No, absolutely not. But if you want to have one glass of wine a week or two beers a week, you know, in the long run, is that really, truly detrimental to fertility? I think it'd be hard to establish that. Yeah. Similarly with caffeine, up until a few years ago, as fertility specialists, we were very categorical about zero caffeine. All caffeine is bad, e even in pregnancy as well. Yeah. And newer data actually suggests that's probably not true. That as long as a patient is having one normal cup of coffee a day, you know, not multiple shots of espresso, not like a tall, you know, 36 ouncer, but just a regular cup of coffee in the morning or, you know, whenever they enjoy it, that there was probably no long-term effect to their fertility. So again, it's one of those trying to bring a little bit of normalcy, a little bit of what life was like before infertility back to the patient and back to the couple. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And then, sorry, I did start the other question, but have you seen improvements? So when you've made these recommendations for couples that come to you around the lifestyle aspects, like, have you seen improvements? Is there any particular stories that you'd like to share there? Any, anything in that? A hundred percent. So, you know, I think, I think that the tough part with lifestyle interventions, and you're probably more of an expert at this than me, is that it's not a quick fix. Like there's no magic pill. There's no do this for a week and all of a sudden you'll be pregnant. All lifestyle interventions, as well as mo many of the integrative practices, by the way, like acupuncture, supplements, et cetera, most of the data around that is all around a minimum of three months or more. And so it's really these small changes over a long period of time that are going to lead to effective change. And I absolutely, I won't share personal stories of patients, but I absolutely have seen improvement. Um, I've absolutely seen pregnancies. So, you know, patients who were maybe, you know, enjoying alcohol, you know, five, six nights a week and not a lot, but enough that it was, you know, a, a sort of common habitual thing really, really, really cut back. And over time were able to conceive without my help. I've seen, you know, couples who, were maybe not nicotine, so not tobacco, but they were vaping. Theoretically, the testing was okay. They came off of it. A few months later, they got pregnant on their own. So 
I will say, I think there's definitely something to it. I just think patients need to be aware. It's not going to be overnight. It's not going to be a one day, like, let me go cold turkey and we'll be pregnant and then I can restart or whatever it is. So whatever you are going to do, it needs to be a small, doable change for your daily life. And it's going to have to be something that you can do over the long haul because this is, again, we're talking about months. We're not talking about just a few days or just a few weeks. Exactly. It's those sustainable changes. And yes. in general, they're going to benefit you anyway. Correct. Um, <laughs> yeah. no, Correct. I'm Correct. trying to take that out of the picture sometimes. But in general, you know, when you do get pregnant and you want to obviously be healthy as well, you want to make sure that, you know, your vitamin levels and everything are optimal because yes. you do have that child, you need that energy as well. So yes, well, it's all really important to, to continue doing. But as you said, those sustainable changes are the most important because if you're not going to stick to it, then you're going to be unhappy and that can potentially your journey as well so it's a more additive approach I like to say where you add stuff and not take <laughs> I like that thing. <laughs> yeah yeah so I yeah. think I think there's like two great points there that I just want to highlight one is leading back to you and your work and this podcast and this platform is that by the time patients are seeing me because I do this education with every single patient. The, I have these conversations with every single patient that walks through my door. But most of these couples have been trying for a minimum of one to two years by the time they get to me. Yeah. Some even longer. And so when you talk about these small sustainable changes, if they hear this podcast now and they start trying next month, they can make these small changes over time so that in a year, year and a half, Hopefully not, but if you do need to see me, you've already optimized this aspect and we're not having to have that conversation in my office a year, two or three years later. So that's why I think that empowering through education and using your platform is such a beautiful thing because I think it's so important to the journey and to their success and something that they have control over and that they can start right at the beginning of the process. I wish there was more doctors like you. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Because I know sometimes that can be the gap where I know that I interviewed my business um, coach, actually, and she went through nine rounds of IVF and no one mm. ever talked to her about nutrition. But like she's obviously in the nutrition area, so she knew herself, sure. but she did. Sure. So not one person ever said brought it up. Yeah. yeah. So it's yeah. amazing that we have people like yourself that is really invested in that area because that is so important. Um, yeah. so yes. And I think the second piece that I'll, I'll bring up is I think all of these components are so important to a patient's journey and to a patient's success, but it's so important to have team, right? Because I am not an expert in nutrition. I am not an expert in acupuncture. I am an expert in my piece and yeah. I can talk inside and out all day, every day about what I do, but I think it's important to work with that team to say, okay, how can I optimize myself? Okay, I need to be working with Evelyn. I need to be working with Dr. Sweldo. I need to be working with an Acu. I need to be working with, et cetera. And, and building that team out as you're going through the process. Number one, I think it just gives you more support, more knowledge, more empowerment, more control over your journey. But number two, I just think it sets you up for the best success, to be honest. Yeah, because as you said, it can be a long journey, very emotional, mm -hmm. very expensive. Mm -hmm the right services and team in place from the beginning that can really save you a lot of time, heartache, money. Yeah, yeah all of it. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Um, one thing that I did really want to talk about, because I know the weight side of things is sensitive, but kind of a hot topic within fertility. I know there is cutoffs for like IVF and being able to do IVF. And I, I think yep. around about 30 BMI. Do you work with clients in the obesity area? And like, I know a lot of people are now utilizing medical intervention for mm -hmm. weight loss. So whether that's mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. surgery or medication, mm -hmm. would you be able to give us some of your thoughts around that and how whether that's a good line of action to go down or is that something that you you're, usually you're just diving right in. <laughs> I love it. No, no, I love it. And 
And I'll, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. I love that you asked this question because here in the U.S., we know that the majority of the adult population suffers from either being overweight or obese. Yeah. However, when they did research and surveys, they found that it was either not talked about at all or kind of brushed over in the consults with patients, um, both during their annual visits and even in visits with specialists. Mm-hmm. So that's point number one. And I think there is, as you mentioned in the beginning, the sensitivity around the term obesity, around weight health. So because of you know the physician's discomfort, they just say, well, I'm just going to kind of skim over this part or not address it and just kind of move along. The other point that I think is really important is that historically, we have always thought that it was the patient's fault. Mm-hmm. And we have always thought that the patient just needs to eat less and move more. Mm-hmm. And really, what we now know is that probably that was coming from a place of ignorance, that we really did not have a good understanding about the biology of obesity and this hormonal impact that it was having to the whole system and how we could really affect change. We really didn't have a whole lot of tools in our toolkit to address it other than eat less and move more. Now, I would say, at least here in the U.S., in the last four to five years, there is just an abundance of research finally starting to come out, talking to us about, hey, no, it's not just the patient. There's genetics, there's leptin, there's ghrelin, there's so many hormones involved in this disease process in the same way that we talk about thyroid disorders, in the same way that we talk about infertility as diseases, Obesity is a disease. It's not the patient's fault that they like voluntarily chose this, right? So I think those are two really key distinctions to make. I think a third important point is that BMI or body mass index, which is, you know, a a formula calculated between height and weight of the patient is actually a really poor marker. We now know is a really poor marker to, to reflect sort of weight health, if you will. The thing with BMI is that it's clear cut, there's a nice little formula and it's objective and everybody can use it. And so for research purposes, BMI, and even in medicine today, myself included, we're still using BMI a lot because it's an easy parameter and everybody understands what everybody's talking about. So even though we recognize that it's not the best marker, we do still use it quite a bit. So I just wanted to make those those kind of foundational points before we got into the topic. The next thing that I will mention is that, at least here in the U.S., there is not a black and white guideline by the National Society of, hey, all fertility clinics in the U.S., if the patient has an obesity issue or a BMI over X or whatnot, there really is not black and white guidelines as to how to manage these patients. And so depending on what clinic you go to, you're going to be told something different. So just to give you some frame of reference... When I was doing my fellowship, it was at the University of Connecticut in the state of Connecticut. Awesome place, by the way, to train in the Northeast. And they had very, very strict cutoffs for patients who were going to be going to IVF that were in place from anesthesia. So there was very strict guidelines. That's what I was trained on. Then I moved to South Florida and where I was practicing, there was no BMI cutoff. So everybody could go through. Then when I moved out to California, we had a third set of parameters. And now that I'm back at my center, I have a different. So my point is that, you know, you've seen one policy and you've seen one policy. Wherever you go is going to be a little bit different. And so you really want to educate yourself on what what does the literature say and what is the safest and best thing for me? Here in the United States, most patients are out of pocket for IVF or in vitro fertilization with a IVF, one IVF cycle averaging anywhere from five to 10 up to $20,000. So it's a huge financial investment. It's also a huge emotional investment. And for the female partner going through it, a huge physical investment as well. And so we know that patients who have a weight health issue and who are obese do have lower egg yields, poorer egg quality, they tend to potentially have slight decrease in the chance of pregnancy, but more importantly, an increased risk for miscarriage should they become pregnant. From a procedural standpoint, we know that the more fatty tissue the patient has, 
the higher up the ovaries get pushed into the abdomen. So when we're going in to extract the eggs, we go in through the vagina, the, the ovaries are much higher than they would be normally, and that can increase the risk of side effects with the procedure. So there's a number of reasons why weight may impact IVF or IVF outcomes. The issue, especially in the fertility world, is that we're looking at the global picture. So for example, my conversation around weight for a patient who's 25 is not going to be the same as a patient who's 35 or 38 or 40, because there we're now battling the ovarian age component to things as well. So there's a little bit of a different timeline. So I'm sorry, this is a really lengthy answer, but it's a complex issue. And, and I think it's important that we tackle a lot of this. Shifting gears to treatment, you were mentioning, you know, while I was in training, you know, there was very little medication out there as an option. And then in the last 10 years, I would say bariatric surgery became more common mm -hmm. depending on the type of surgery, depending on, you know, how things were done, the weight was lost and potentially then recuperated. In all cases of bariatric surgery, because there's such rapid weight loss afterwards, we typically tell patients from the time of surgery, we want to see things out a year. So your fertility journey gets put on hold for a year. We want to make sure things stabilize. And then once we know that your weight is stable, you're, all those vitamins and minerals you were mentioning earlier in the podcast episode, we want to make sure all of that is okay, you know, replenished and stabilized before we get you pregnant. Post-pandemic, we see, at least here in the U.S., you know, the coming out of semaglutide and you know, also known as Ozempic. Um, we saw Wagovi. Those were kind of the first two. We also then saw Manjaro. Now there's another one. And they made a huge splash. I mean, everybody was talking about it. Even I would open up my celebrity gossip, you know, People magazine, and they were talking about Ozempic and Wagovi. And I'm like, what is happening here? Yeah. And, you know, I think what was so exciting, and I think now, you know, we're, we're kind of maybe a year into this, a year and a half into it. I think, you know, we've tempered that a little bit. I think we recognize that it has to be the right patient, the right candidate, monitored closely, you know, dosed appropriately. Like there's, a, there's several things to kind of consider. It's not just, oh, give this to everybody and this is the magic solution. But it was the first time in medical history, for us at least, or in a very, very long time, that we had a new tool in our toolkit, that we now had something to offer patients, that we now were beginning to understand that it's not just about eat less, move more. And yes, all of those things are important, right? So going back to that three-armed approach of treatment, lifestyle, nutrition, how are you moving your body, like that is all going to be a huge component of this. Also addressing many times when there are weight health issues, there's also psychological issues associated that may or may not have been uncovered or, or addressed. And so we want to make sure we're tackling all of those things, right? It's not just a medication solution. Yeah. But I think what was so transformative in our sort of social mindset as a society is we now begin to understand obesity differently. And we now begin to understand it as a true disease as opposed to lack of willpower or lack of self-control. And I think that was very revolutionary. And from a fertility standpoint, it really changed, you know, it was a game changer for us because alternative to that previously had only been the bariatric surgery with a year delay. And yeah. so now we had, you know, something that we could give more short term now, that's where things get, again, we talk about that gray zone. There's not black and white. And so when we talk about a lot of the weight loss medications, the most conservative people will talk about a two-month washout period. So two months off of any injections or medications or whatnot before a pregnancy. What we're seeing is that now it's like, well, there's a theoretical concern to pregnancy, although no established concern. So we think that that's maybe just the manufacturer being over conservative and that's fine. We would prefer that, right? So baby steps as we navigate that. But really, do we think there's an impact to egg or embryo quality? So could the patient be taking this while they're making embryos and then come off of it, have their two month washout and then go into a transfer? There's also some concerns with stomach emptying. So what I mean by that 
is if you've ever had to have anesthesia, they ask you to not eat anything after midnight the night before to make sure your stomach is empty before they put you to sleep. So with the egg extraction procedure, there is anesthesia that is given. And so in the hospitals with major cases, they're starting to see that patients who are on these medications still have some food in their stomach. It's called delayed gastric emptying. And so then should we consider stopping it for a short interval, you know, two, one, two weeks before they're going to start the IVF, get them through their retrieval, make sure they're safe, and then restart post-retrieval. So there's a number of things, you know, it's, it's a very evolving landscape. There's certainly no clear-cut guideline recommendation at this point outside of manufacturer recommendations. But again, definitely a game changer and definitely something worth exploring with your doc. Oh, that is so interesting. I actually did not yeah. know a lot of that stuff. So thank oh, you. Oh, good. A lot of people wouldn't actually understand, like, you know, how it can benefit and like mm -hmm. the other aspects then. So that is so interesting. I did also want to, you know, um, raise the fact that you said there it isn't a magical pill because I think... Mm -hmm. That's what people are looking yes. for nowadays, whether it is yes. supplements, they'll take lots of random supplements because they've heard, you know, this is great. That's great from someone else. The same, obviously, with the medication, like there's obviously yep. it, as you said, it has to fit the patient, which I think is mm -hmm. really important to outline that. But yeah, so I, th I think that's a really, really interesting thing to bring up. But I suppose what I wanted to ask was, like, what would be the main myths and misconceptions that you tend to get from, you know, new clients that come to your center? Yeah. So shifting gears away from weight health and just talking about kind of general myths or myth busters. And I cover these um, sometimes on my social media pages. I think, you know, the first one I would say is probably seeing a fertility specialist equals IVF. And that really, that really couldn't be further from the truth. I will say that many patients do end up needing IVF and that's fine and, and that's what they need, but it really does need to be individualized testing and treatment. And so really coming to see a fertility specialist is about testing. It's about evaluation. It's about have we looked at everything we need to look at? And then if so, Let's talk about the different treatment options and what may be appropriate for you. And not all of them include IVF. So that would probably be number one. Number two is birth con the birth control pill caused infertility. And the birth control pill has now been around since, you know, the 50s, 60s. We have lots of long-term data on the birth control pill. You know, we can confidently tell patients that that is not the reason for infertility. What we do know is that many times the birth control pill is given as an adolescent or as a you know young adult for extremely painful periods or it's given for irregular periods or things like that and so really at baseline there was a fertility irregularity and so coming off of the pill simply brings that back to light so that's probably number two. And then you know number three not to knock on the guys but they never think there's anything wrong with them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and I would just, you know, I would just say that fertility affects everybody equally. Fertility does not discriminate. It affects both genders. It affects all races, ethnicities, socioeconomic classes, religions. Infertility does not discriminate. So if you are a male and you are involved in the process, yes, you need to get checked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I think the woman takes a lot of the burden and yeah. only so much you can do if you're not the issue in a way, yes. you know, like, so it is really important that you have that approach with your partner as well. And like in the services I run, I always say that it is a couple approach. Yeah. So it's really, really important. I think those. Um... And even the, you know, we were talking about the lifestyle component. Okay. The female, you know, maybe she doesn't smoke, but maybe the guy smokes a pack a day. Hmm. Or maybe he likes his cigar at night in the house, you know, or things like that. And so secondhand smoke is definitely an issue, you know, or maybe she doesn't drink, but maybe he drinks a six pack a night with the guys before he goes home after work or whatnot, you know? So I think any lifestyle change that we've talked about tonight is applicable to both partners, you know, regardless of where, you know, who, who we're talking about. Mm -hmm. I know that 
that we did touch on some research in endocrinology, but is there any emerging research that you've read recently that seems to be interesting? So any, anything that's exciting or promising in the area? I mean, so there's so much, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so, you know, when you talk about infertility, you know, even best case scenario, even with the most advanced technology we have to offer today, we're still quoting patients, you know, a 50 to 60% pregnancy rate, you know, per try. And so there's this, you know, 40% gap that we still haven't figured out how to account for. So, you know, there's always, it's always evolving, right? And so Mm -hmm. I think some things on the horizon that are extremely exciting is the use of PRP or plasma rich platelets, both into the uterus to thicken the lining for patients who have lining issues as well as into the ovary. They also call it ovarian rejuvenation. That's just a fancy, you know, marketing term, but, but certainly exciting, you know, stuff out there on PRP. Number two, and probably a little more gray would be the use of donor mitochondria. And actually in the UK, they're doing this already. So for patients who have a disease in the mitochondria and potentially up until now had been using donor egg could now keep their nucleus. So they're their DNA is still being passed on, but the mitochondria is being replaced. And so that's also super exciting. And then from a lab perspective, I think something that's really exciting is that, you know, we're, there's a ton of research out there and it's almost ready for prime time, but not quite there yet is the use of non-invasive genetic testing. So, so right now for us to be able to, to genetically test the embryos, we actually have to take a piece of the embryo. So we remove a we remove a piece of tissue and we send that tissue out for genetic analysis. And really the goal is that if we can get equivalent results without touching the embryo, but instead testing the media that the embryo is growing in, so, so spent culture media, and obtaining DNA from that media that would give us equivalent results, that would be really exciting because now we're not manipulating the embryo. We're not invading the embryo. And so lots and lots of exciting research on the horizon, I would say, out there. And like I said at the very beginning of the podcast, like this is a really exciting field. And you, you know, there's um, studies coming out every day that are changing practice. And so really as a, what's exciting for me as a physician is I get to, you know, I have to read up, I have to stay in the know, I have to stay up to date because things are always changing. So uh, yeah, no, it's, there's always, there's always something new going on for sure. It's so interesting. I'm going to have to read some of those papers. Yeah. That so good. So although I could probably talk to you forever about this, <laughs> do you have any final advice you'd give to couples like trying to conceive or couples that are about to go through IVF or just any general advice? I know you've given a lot. Yeah, so, so no, it's okay. It's okay. I appreciate the question. You know, I think I think the the first one is don't wait. So I think, you know, a lot of times we think about fertility specialists or we think about IVF in older patients. But actually, you know, the average patient in my clinic is under 35. Mm-hmm. And so many of them were told, you know, oh, just keep trying. Oh, just take a vacation. Oh, don't worry about it. Just keep tracking. You'll be fine. You know, come back to me in another year, whatever. Yeah. And so really um, understanding that if you are under the age of 35 and you've been trying for over a year, it is time to get tested. If you're mm-hmm. over 35, we actually we actually shorten that to six months. And then if you have any risk factors, so for example, you had you know, a huge abdominal surgery as a baby and there's risk of scar tissue inside the belly or, you know, your mom and your sister both have endometriosis and you have terribly painful periods, even though you're ovulating regularly, you know, there might be endometriosis underlying. And certainly if your periods are irregular, you don't want to wait the six or 12 months, you want to get evaluated right away. So I think just sometimes I think, especially with the younger patients, they can be a little bit dismissed. And I really want to make sure that we empower them and and really educate them to advocate for themselves. So that's probably my biggest message um, to to the audience. Have you have you seen an increase in younger clients? Sorry, I didn't mean to ask this earlier because you know a lot that's of that okay. research, like that research p- paper that came out saying that men nowadays have half the sperm count of their grandfathers. 
Like mm -hmm. you think there is younger people coming into your practice or so I will say anecdotally, no, anecdotally, um, it has remained fairly stable as far as the age ranges. Now that said, you know, also what I tell patients is number one, we're looking for it more. It's something that's talked about a lot more. P patients are seeking help. They're seeking treatment. Whereas before maybe they weren't, or it was taboo or, you know, you couldn't really talk about it. Number two, is that post-industrial revolution, as a human species, we are exposed to more plastics and more toxins and more fumes in the air than ever before at any point in human history. And then number three is there is a natural, particularly in developing countries or in developed countries, I should say, there is this, this tendency for education over family building that continues to push out the age when women start trying for their first child. And while it's still maybe under 35, it's much higher than what it used to be in the past. And so I think there's a variety of components that contribute to maybe us experiencing it in a higher volume, though we don't really see a shift or a change over time, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's great. Thank you. So before we actually do finish up, if, um, <laughs> yeah, before I ask you 10 more questions, <laughs> if someone wanted to work with you, how would they go about it? Yeah, beautiful. Um, so as I mentioned in the beginning, I'm the founder of Sabo Fertility Center, which is a boutique personalized fertility practice. We really believe in fertility care, reimagined and just bringing back the human touch to fertility practice and the fertility journey. So you can find me on the social media pages, um, Dr. Carolina Sweldo, both on Instagram and Facebook. I also have a YouTube channel with my name. And if you want to check out my website, you can go to Sabo, C-E-I-B-O, fertilitycenter.com. Um, I will put all of those details in the notes so people can directly reach out to you. But I just want to thank you so much. It's actually been so interesting having you as a guest. And I think our audience have definitely learned so much more about fertility and reproductive health. So thank you so much for being part of the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of the Women's Health and Fertility Nutrition Podcast. If you're looking to take your fertility and hormonal health journey to the next level, then don't miss out on our free seven-day fertility and PCOS diet plan. It's packed with valuable information and practical tips to help you optimize your nutrition for improved reproductive health. And that's not all. For a more comprehensive approach, be sure to check out our website at www.enhancedfertilitynutrition.org. There you'll find a range of programs and services tailored to your specific needs. Our best practice three-month program, Fertility Focus, is designed to provide you with the support and guidance you need to enhance your fertility nutrition journey. Until next time, keep educating and supporting your journey. Please share this podcast with anyone that may benefit from it. And leave me a five-star rating as your act of kindness for the day. See you next time.